Okay, I have to confess, I'm not a gamer. But last year at Hacker Summer Camp, I was invited to Miko Hupinen's book launch. It was for his book, If It's Smart, It's Vulnerable. Great book. His publisher decided to have the book launch in an arcade in Las Vegas where gaming competitors would sit in a main arena and the screens displayed the action to the audience seated around the players. It was an interesting idea that people would pay to see top gamers compete against each other. Given that this was at Hacker Summer Camp, where the world's best hackers converge on Las Vegas for a week of Diana Initiative, B-Sides Las Vegas, Black Hat, and of course DEFCON, it seemed only logical that maybe a Capture the Flag competition might be held here someday, or in a place like it. Well, it turns out, something like that did happen. Back in 2016, when DARPA commissioned its Cyber Grand Challenge during the Hacker Summer Camp that year, these were machines, not humans, playing Capture the Flag. And DARPA made the event interesting. They actually televised it. Live from the Paris Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada, it's the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge final event. So the question is, if all DEFCON CTFs were like this, televised, what would that look like? What if you could see the screens and have interviews with the players at any moment? Well, in a moment, I'll introduce you to the person who has actually done this. And given his experience with live broadcasts of CTFs, he's now working to make live CTFs a regular eSport event. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Vimosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about live CTFs, gamifying something that's already a game and packaging it for the people that want to view it as an eSport. First, a quick disclaimer. The Hacker Mind is sponsored by For All Secure, which did in fact win the one and only Cyber Grand Challenge in 2016 with its computer reasoning system called Mayhem. I mention this because my guest on this episode, well, he was also part of the CGC. He was the one in the background that was pulling up the stats and issuing them out to the audience. My name is Jordan Wines, and uh, I am either founder of Vector35 or CTF has been or hacker, depending on how you want to how you want to slice it. Jordan has both played and created numerous Capture the Flag competitions. And Jordan has his own company, Vector35. It was born out of a history of Capture the Flag competitions. Yeah, so, so Vector35 grew out of a number of folks that were playing CTFs, that were doing vulnerability research, doing reverse engineering, uh, for government uh, contracting purposes, and then thought like, uh, you know what, it'd be nice to see sunshine, uh, have a window at her office, and get outside and do more, you know, kind of move commercial. Uh, and we thought, hey, this this reverse engineering market hasn't really changed in forever. I think we can we can do something good here. And so we formed uh, Vector Thirty Five to make Binary Ninja uh, over eight years ago now. So it was eight years ago, uh, January, and uh, still going strong. So Vector35, often there's an inside joke to a name. I couldn't think of one. 
You wouldn't, but there is a reason. Um, it's it it was the the three co-founders were all 35 years old when we when we founded the company eight years ago. So in fact, I'm turning 43 tomorrow. So we should call it, you know Vector 43 this year. But um, we uh, uh, yeah we're um, uh, and then Vector was was really just kind of like it has connotations of you know, like the, from the Minions show, the, there's the villain called Vector Direction and Magnitude. And so that we kind of like that vibe, uh, but also like Vector Graphics, like video games, there's this, you know, that, so we kind of had this like bent of, uh, we were doing capture the flag events and building hackable video games as for fun. Like we've, we've to this day, never made really money on that. I think we did one training for Google once a long time ago, where we did a paid training using one of our hackable video games but really we just have done a bunch of ctfs where we um you know release these these hackable things pwn adventure was a series of games and so that's kind of part of our culture even if it wasn't part of the business plan necessarily um of of the company and so vector having kind of several of those connotations as well as like attack vector um because we were kind of had been doing offensive work so we sort of like background in some of that stuff into it um but we just kind of thought it was a nice nice word and was unique enough that we could, you know, get the domain name. One of the skills necessary for a successful capture the flag experience is being able to look inside an unknown binary. So in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about reverse engineering. Yeah. So people, when they ask me what I do, I say, I build software that takes apart other pieces of software. So the idea is that um, for a variety of purposes, um, a company might want to understand, is this piece of software a virus? Or someone else might want to say, is this piece of software that I'm going to run on my computer, does it have vulnerabilities? Are there things about the software that I need to know? And um, when uh, there's different types of software, so we don't work with all software. You know, if I want to differentiate between compiled and, and interpreted and web tech versus, you know, most like binary native stuff. Um, so I, I don't usually split that. I usually just say like the apps running on your phone, for example, are all compiled and built specifically for your phone and your the CPU on that phone. And to turn it back into something that humans can understand, that's essentially where our software comes along. So this is important. When we talk about executables, not all binaries are easy to reverse engineer. Absolutely. But for example, Python is not compiled to binary. Um, they have like Python bytecode, which isn't real, uh, .NET, uh, Java, uh, these other like virtual machines uh, have separate analyses that would you do that you would do for them. And there, there's actually dedicated tools for each of those, right? There's dedicated Python decompilers, dedicated um, .NET decompilers, dedicated Java decompilers. And we intentionally focused our design on, on just native. Yeah. So just binaries. Again, if I'm explaining to a layperson, I'll say like, if it runs on your phone, it's probably a, a native application, but um, for example, when you go to a website, there's like code in your browser, the JavaScript that makes web apps work. That's not something that we, you know, would, would be analyzing to kind of differentiate. You could do reverse engineering manually, but why would you? There are a few good tools out on the market today. I've used Ida Pro at Black Hat Briefing Trainings. It's the gold standard, but it's also really expensive. Then there's the open source free tool from the NSA, Ghidra. Jordan's product, Binary Ninja, it fits nicely in the middle. So it is, a, it is a, it's a mixture. And so one of our sort of key things that we did differently from the beginning was we said, look, we, we're, 
the Ida Pro is like the main commercial tools everybody uses. There's a couple of open source things. Now we have Ghidra, which has come out. The NSA has open source their tool. We had actually used it before, not extensively, but like we had access as government contractors or sort of past life. And so we were familiar with it, at least that it existed. But the 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 thing that we saw um, that we wanted to focus on was we built an API first. So we built a system for automation. Uh, and then we just built a UI on, on top of that. Uh, whereas like with Ida, for example, they didn't even have a Python API. It was a third party that wrote it uh, and kind of shimmed it in. They have like a separate public and private API split. They have like sort of like this, what the public sees and then they have what they can use internally and they're not the same thing. We designed our interface to be just a full public API same thing that we use to build our UI, any other plugin, anybody else can build on top of it and do whatever they want. And so um, like I, we care a lot about UI and UX and design, and we, we think we're the only product that does um, uh, to the degree that we do, certainly, because the other tools are clearly like power tool, geek tools that have been around forever and have just got a ton of features and buttons and knobs and whistles and they're intimidating. Um, whereas we actively fight against the trend, even though we've been around eight years, we try not to just Put everything in a button or you know menu and try to make it like any anyway um but so we you know we care about the user experience we care about it being man manual but we also have a heavy focus on automation and making sure that we are the best tool for automation we're still not actually the best tool for some types of manual analysis there's some features in, in both ida and ghidra ida still has great decompilation ghidra still has better project-based support for like collections of binaries or changes over time there's things that they do better there but our api is like universally accepted to be really, really good and kind of kind of a strength, um, you know, I think. And so we're working on, we want to be the best at everything, um, but that's that's sort of kind of how we uh, have, have focused it. Sorry, it was a long answer. When I interviewed for my current job, I was actually asked about using Binary Ninja, whether I was comfortable with it. It shows up in the industry quite a bit. Binary Ninja is lucky in that it serves an interesting niche within the market. And obviously, you know, you lose to their price is is the big one. We knew we had to come in at a cheaper price point. Um, I'm very jealous at the the margins that, <laughs> that Ida has and what they can charge as the sort of dominant commercial player. Um, but you know, I think that that Ghidra has been really interesting because it is you must be this tall to ride now, right? Like, no, we if if Ghidra had come out. Um, when we were like within the first year or two of us starting the, the company, we would have actually had to go out. We would have pivoted or done something completely different. We could not have competed. We 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 could were able to survive because we had five six years of development in the pipeline to be mature enough uh, to have a the good enough product. But if we had to spend thirty developer deck you know, years uh, building a tool to compete against something that's free. <laughs> Like before we could even be close to comparable, like that just wouldn't have scaled. It wouldn't have worked. Um, you know, even with our focus kind of on API and some other things, uh, I think we'd have had a much harder time. Because one of the ways we were able to succeed early on is we had really great traction in students and hobbyist markets because we intentionally priced and had much better discounts and had like a non-commercial version versus a commercial version with a very big price difference. And so we we had this two-pronged approach for experts. We had a better API and some program analysis and some modern techniques that like the very high end of people really appreciated. And so they would, even if they were using IDA still to do their manual reverse engineering, they would start writing a lot of their scripts and automation on Binary Ninja. And then on the low end, it was because we were affordable and accessible and you know cleaner interface and those kind of things. Um, Gitter would have entirely destroyed that market for us because we wouldn't have been the most affordable you know game in town. So uh, we're very lucky that uh, that we had the run that we did before they uh, released it. Um, the good news though is that we can never have another competitor because it's just it's going to be impossible to make money in this space. Um, 
with something that featureful for free. So it's an interesting side effect of, of, of that hitting the market. There are two types of capture the flag competitions. Perhaps the most common is Jeopardy style, where you have a board with categories and the puzzles get progressively harder in each. Then there's the attack and defend or king of the hill model, which is what you see at DEF CON, where you're not only attacking someone else's server, but you're defending your own server from their attacks. Each have their pros and cons. Both require some reverse engineering knowledge. And reverse engineering is particularly helpful when you don't know what's being thrown at you in a King of the Hill competition. But reverse engineering is also important in Jeopardy style. Yeah, and there's multiple categories that that will come up in, right? So there's even the pwn category, which is a you know, pwnable or exploitation or hack, you know, the sort of pure hacking kind of side. Even that really is heavily reverse engineering because you don't just get told exactly what the flaw is. You have to go find the flaw and then you write the exploit. Uh, there are often separate categories and separate challenges that are pure reverse engineering, pure RE, um, where you the whole goal is there is a flag, there is a something you're going to go steal, and you're going to something you're going to figure out and solve in a binary. And just once you've got it, you submit it and you're done. Um, and that those are kind of distinct usually from from opponable where you're going to attack, you're going to analyze it, figure out it, and then attack the server. Um, but yeah, you, it's a foundational skill for for you know multiple things in in capture the flag. And that's that is exactly how I got my start. So I started you know, my career as a network in de network defense guy. I was working at a university and had a server get hacked into, wrote up a little report, thought it was super cool, and then ended up getting hired as a security engineer at the university um, as a student um, because I was just like, oh, this is cool. We got hacked and like, I was really interested in stuff, but I had no, you know, excuse or experience. And so started doing network defense uh, and then started playing capture the flag, which turned into like, oh, this hacking stuff is pretty fun too. And so that's where I spent, you know, uh, you know, the next seven, eight years of my life doing offensive stuff. And now it's funny because as a building a reverse engineering tool, uh, both offense and defense are going to use it equally, right? Whether it's finding a bug, whether it's for analyzing malware, it's just more of a, it, uh, it's like a compiler. It's, you know, dual use technology. It has a lot of applications. Uh, and so I think that kind of balances, it's been helpful. But yeah, it was CTF that took me from network and defense into like this offensive and reverse engineering uh, kind of world for me personally anyway. Jordan is modest. He's actually played in DEF CON's prestigious final round, Capture the Flag, for a number of times, and he's won. Meaning, he has a black badge that will get him into DEF CON for free forever. I've, I've played, mostly the has-beens, the old, I'm, I, I joke that I've been a has-been. I've played in 10 finals, I think I counted, at DEF CON um, in the past. So I've been, been around for quite a long time. I'm actually helping now. I'm not officially a member of Nautilus that's running it this year, but I'm, I'm this, this, group called live ctf we've kind of put together and we're sort of like an ancillary to uh to the nautilus institute which is the team that's that's doing the main event uh and we're focused really just on on broadcast and production and making visible and being able to talk about and show because people have been playing defcon for you know almost 30 years now and uh it's really hard to like get a sense of what they're doing and how good they are and you hear these stories and so i really am passionate about uh, trying to make it digestible, trying to make it understandable, trying to 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 show how impressive it is that some of these these people that sort of top of their game are, uh, and so that's that's what kind of what what live CTF is doing. But I've I've been on uh, team uh, Men in Black Hats, team Last Place, 
uh, Team Veda Gods. Uh, we won DEFCON three times. I won twice with last place and I won with um, Team Veda Gods or Team Awesome. I forget which name it was that year. Um, and then, yeah, played played a number of other years. But uh, like I said, it was a long time ago. I was back when it was, it was easier. So with DEFCON, anything goes. And that extends out to the CTFs. Jordan has a talk where he enumerates some of the best challenges he's encountered. The way it works is that an organization designs the challenges each year. Organizations such as Legit BS or Order of the Overflow. Currently, it's the Nautilus Institute, composed of several past winners. Anyway, one year there was this weird hybrid hardware and software challenge. It was called Badger. It was. It was. That was. That's one of the. Um, you know, I sort of have a list of like the most impressive challenges people have ever done, and um, that's that's high up there. Um, just in terms of terms of what went into it. So I mean, nowadays badge life is a thing at DefCon, right? Like in the last five years, everybody's building their own badges. There's the you know these little ESP chips that have like all-in-one Wi-Fi and a little Linux or a little you know embedded OS that's just trivial, and you download the firmware, and you tweak a few things, and you've got blinky lights and a badge that can talk to other things and like do all sorts of cool stuff. It is, it's really exciting. It's fun. But um, this was probably 10 years ago uh, when um, legit BS was the organizers. So um, I have to go for the exact year. It was one of the earlier years. So yeah, it's, it's been at least 10 years, I think. And um, oh, I remember his, his handle. I'll just say Jason uh, was the, was the developer. I don't think he'll, he'll get mad at me for, for outing his first name. Um, but the guy who, who built it, um, designed his own circuit board, um, but like designed in, like an F, an FPGA on it that he, you know is is a circuit that you can kind of reprogram, right? Like an FPGA is the ability. It's sort of like you can you can reprogram it to be a different piece of hardware. So it's kind of in between the sort of software and harder hardware. If you know if listeners aren't familiar with it, um, and so it's it's really like geeky and really interesting. And he built these into these badges, um, and then built his own. Sp- spread spectrum wireless protocol mesh network where like because defcon has always been his hostile like wi-fi in fact actually it's only been the recent years that like you could just use wi-fi defcon it would be reasonably good and you could get a uh, secure link and actually is generally fine like for a long time you just turned off every wireless interface in your device whatsoever because it was going to be atrocious and it's been excuse me it's been recently that I feel like it's it's actually kind of reasonable. Like I don't turn my phone in airplane mode at DefCon anymore, and haven't for for several years. Um, and, and partly just because like no one's gonna blow an iOS O'Day on the DefCon floor because you're gonna one that you're gonna lose it because people are gonna capture it and steal it from you and do whatever they want with it. Uh, and and two, it's yeah, it's just it's just too noisy, too open, too much people kind of looking on. But anyway, uh, so this badge was just incredibly like advanced on both the the wireless, the communication network, and had its own little custom like messaging thing. You could do little icons and you could use a little push buttons to just like use it like as a wireless like chat badge with the other badges. Uh, and it was this custom like message passing wireless, uh, you know, mesh network that would establish uh, just incredibly complex amount of engineering. Uh, I mean, even doing the circuit, like they actually did the um, the boards themselves. This was, uh, you know, it, like to get it done right, they actually were like baking in the oven the circuit boards to like get the get the chips uh, in place instead of using like a, a service that just kind of did it for you. Which nowadays the prices have come down so much that um, it's almost always the the, the better option. Uh, so it's just yeah, it's super neat how much work and engineering goes into these like hobby projects. It's it, you know it's interesting going from kind of like a government contractor and commercial and. Um, a lot of people, when we started our company, actually, we, we really thought about 
do we want to sell a reverse engineering tool or do we want to like do capture the flag as a service or as like a paid, like that maybe, maybe that's a business there. And a lot of, um, a lot of government, a lot of companies are like, love the idea of capture the flag. I'm like, this would be great for training and for, you know, this is, this is really cool. Uh, and then you tell them how much it costs and they're like, oh, never mind, <laughs> because it's, it's incredibly difficult. Um, it takes so much effort. And so like for all secure had a thing for a while that they were trying to like auto generate, right. And to be able to make the like new challenges without the labor cost of a manual bespoke custom challenges to try to kind of thread that needle. Um, but there's not been a lot of companies that have really even tried because like the, like the, the labor of love that is DEFCON CTF and the organizers, the amount of work they put into it, uh, you just, you, it's millions of dollars, like at like any, any standard billable rate. If you were to pay these experts to do this stuff, it's just incredibly expensive. Um, but when they do it for fun, they'll spend six months of their life pouring into something fascinating and then release it for their friends to hack on. So it's, it's cool. In episode four of The Hacker Mind, I spoke with Ari, a member of the Plaid Parliament of Poning, or PPP, the most celebrated team in DEF CON history. In that episode, she told me about one of her gnarly experiences. The challenge was called Clemency, and it was based on an unknown operating system. Ari told me about showing up the day before and learning this. So all the tools, all that they had worked on in preparation for that year's DEF CON, had been for naught. They had to start over from scratch, and they had to do so the night before the competition. I told them not to. So I was friends with with um, the organizers. We, I knew what they were doing, and they actually even asked us, they're like, do you want to build support in Binary Ninja for this? And I was like, heck no, that's way too hard. I have like real architectures and real customers. That's going to take me too much time to do it right. I can't distract from my my you know trying to launch a commercial company here. I think you're you're super mean and no one's going to do well and it's going to be a, a huge flop. I'm very glad I was wrong. It was not. And I think, you know, some teams struggle, but a lot of teams prevailed. They made it work. And it's the essence of hacking is they figured it out. But yeah, Clemency was was designed, you know, Lightning, the author who made that, she designed that to be mean. Like she is notorious for like making stuff super hard. Uh, and it was just weird. Like, you know, it's not li little Endian or big Endian, it's middle Endian. And it was three bytes instead of any reasonable power of two. Like it was just, just gross, just really designed to be awkward and awful. And, you know, teams thrived. It's like, you know, poetry, the best poets love weird constraints, right? And because it forces them to be more creative. And so I think to some degree, you see the same thing in hacking where sometimes just the weirder, you know, random, the more random something is, uh, the more, uh, people will thrive and, and enjoy it. to a point. There is there is a breaking point where you know uh, you can burn some people out, but that was a was a success. Jordan knows something about burnout. He's not played CTFs on that rock star level for many many years, and there's a reason that it's so exhausting to compete at that level, and why if you step away, it's not easy to get back in and just play at the highest level possible. I, I joke about being a has been, but it's. it's not entirely wrong. Like I don't keep up with the day-to-day -day skills to be top tier at CTF. Like I'm still okay. I can still go play and enjoy and have some some fun. But like I'm not going to go qualify for DevCon uh, these days because I haven't kept. Like I'm still a decent reverse engineer. Um, and but like to to solve some of the parts of CTF I've gotten so specialized and advanced and continue to build on the history of other challenges and other events that like it's very difficult to be in that mindset. And it's different too. Like the day-to-day -day reverse engineering work of, you know, the pacing and the goals are kind of different maybe than like drop in and go and just super speed rush. It's like people who speed run video games 
versus just play it, you know, like it's a very different way of, of kind of playing. And CTF is a little bit like that. People who play CTF um, have to be fast. And so uh, live CTF kind of distills that down. And uh, it's with livectf.com. You can go see the, the bracket we kind of did last year. We took one person from each team and put them up head to head. And we just gave them a simple binary and said, go. Uh, and then we, we captured the screens. So we got to watch what they were doing, much like you would in an eSport. Um, I'm trying to get booths this year. We'll see if that works out. I want to get them in a nice sound isolation booth because the, the, ironically, one of the, the problems is we couldn't broadcast it in the room and talk about what they're doing because like they would hear it. And so we need to like, sequester them somehow so we're, we're you know trying to figure that out really i hope we can because i want the other players in the room i know that the other players were tuned in they would watch the stream from their laptops and put in headphones or whatever so some of them were were watching but i want to be able to have it more engaging for the live audience and not just people who are able to watch the stream um too but you know the idea is we just watch them go um but yeah those are easier challenges you can't have the same advanced things that would take you far too long to dissect and to even even those challenges watching some of these top tier people do what they do it's so hard to keep up even somebody who built the challenge or knows what the answer is just to watch them and try to think what's going through their head can be can be super challenging but i th- i think i think it was a success i think it was um a step in the right direction and uh yeah we're still trying to figure out how we do that like how we make it accessible I opened the show with DARPA's Cyber Grand Challenge. In episode three, I talk about CGC with the people who participated in the competition itself. Jordan, he was there. He was in the back, and he was helping out with the live TV broadcast. Yeah, the computer revolution was televised. I was behind the scenes. I was actually the guy running the, like, the, you know, like in the, the football thing, there's the guys doing the stats behind the scenes. That was me uh, and a crew of people backstage at Cyber Grand Challenge. Uh, and in fact, for the last like 30 minutes, it was me and Vizzy's earpiece directly telling him because we had some drama with like, we had a whole production pipeline and it was taking too long for the analysis to go to like a video editor, to go to a script writer, to go to the teleprompter, to get on. And so we cut all that out and I just got into his ear and I'm like, all right, Vizzy, I'm just going to tell you what happened live as you talk to the camera. It was chaos. Uh, sorry to interrupt. But yeah, that was a whole, that was actually why we started our company. It was our first uh, paid contract was to work on helping build the visualizations and the, the kind of behind the scenes analysis for that, for that event. So yeah, it's very familiar. So one of the challenges with hacking is that it's actually kind of boring. If you sit there and watch it, it's really not something that is a community sport. And yet somehow the folks behind the CGC still made it interesting. For one thing, they collapsed the 10 hours of hacking when literally the machines themselves were doing all the work and the human teams were just sitting around waiting for the point totals for each round into a rather brisk recap with graphics, music, and interviews with the different teams as they heard and analyzed the results. There was a point where we went real time, which was kind of fun too. Um, so it was it was time such that it went from like, just, okay, we're recap, recap, recap to to live. That's also why it was so stressful being behind the scenes and trying to like keep up with everything that was happening uh, and to get that information to a broadcast. That was 
Yeah, that was really stressful. Um, it was such a cool event and they had done such a good job and had such a good team of like video and light and all the other stuff. Um, but it was it was crazy. Um, and you know, like I think we actually went back and did, I don't know if you saw there was a recap video that, that Deb Nuttall and myself did where we had time to like actually sit back and like, okay, what do we miss? Like what really happened and really recap it in a in a tighter kind of summary. Um, because it was so hard to like really understand what was happening what were they doing what were they not you know especially because these were these were machines you couldn't even go talk to them you're just looking at their output and trying to figure out what was going on it was a huge volume of, of stuff too so i guess like i said we had a whole team of people backstage whose entire job was just analyze everything that came out and figure out what's working what's not what are people trying what are the cool tricks and some of them we caught live and some of them we only really were able to dig into uh you know after the fact post-mortem again it was surprisingly entertaining for a hacking competition so there's another competition from the U.S. government, and that's the annual Hackasack competition. It is just like it sounds. The competition is actually a series of capture the flag challenges that first get you access to the ground station and satellite, then asks you to ultimately control the satellite. Alrighty, so uh, congratulations first of all to all the teams. It's been really fantastic watching them this whole weekend. This is certainly the most exciting Hackasat. I've been here for all three of them, and this was a blast. Very well done. Every one of these teams here has shown amazing progress, has done a lot of good work. Uh, let's watch back a sort of animation that we've been showing you a little bit uh, of the scoreboard. We'll do it here on the, on the computer, and we'll see what these scores look like throughout this entire weekend event. In the first three versions of Hackasat, the satellite in question was digital. It was merely a representation. But... Starting in 2023, Hackasat number four, the satellite will be real. And in fact, it'll be orbiting the Earth. This, I think, would make for some pretty compelling television. Yeah. And so I've, I've been lucky enough to be sort of like the tech spokesperson for Hackasat uh, for the last three years. And, um, you know, the first year it was supposed to be at DEF CON when COVID hit. And so they went from... They, they actually asked us uh, as a company, because again, because of our kind of background in this visualization and gaming and, and kind of the overlap there, could you build this like 3D model that we think would be really cool to show people like, we just wanted a boring scoreboard, we had something really neat. And so we, we were building that and they said, oh, do you want to help present a little bit like at DEF CON? Because, you know, Jordan, you've done, you want to do this kind of glad CTF stuff and you've got a little bit of, um, you've been wanting to do more broadcast stuff. And I said, oh, sure. And so it started as I'll show up and I'll talk a couple of times at DEF CON. I was already going to be anyways. And then it turned into, oh, by the way, you're the only face of the show because COVID. And so we had to set up a full production studio and figure out the workflows for, for doing that. And so the first year was, was I think, kind of rough. Uh, it turns out my my lighting chops needed a lot of work and I learned more about white balance too late uh, to, 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 uh, to get good video. But it was a learning experience, but I mean, the actual content was fun and it was, you know, telling people what was happening in this really cool one of a kind thing of teams hacking into satellites and uh, dealing with new technologies, new constraints. Uh, and so that's kind of, you know, in the last two years, thankfully we knew in advance it was going to be remote. And so I was not the only voice. There was actually people that were, that were, you know, able to talk about other things and we could interview other people. And I was just sort of like the sideline reporter doing, doing tech updates. Um, but it's been, yeah, it's been, it's been a, a super fun experience. And I the thing I like about it too is, you know, a, a lot of people underestimate how much like a good marketing team can, can do just to be able to actually have a company who really um, can design really cool graphics and can clearly like 
um, put the work into good video editing to beforehand and, and recaps afterwards and show that kind of stuff. Like that's, that's a tremendous amount of time and effort. Um, and obviously, you know, if it's, if it's funded, if you've got the budget for it, um, it makes for a much more entertaining and, and you know, uh, thing. And they, they do a good job too of making sure that like lay people will understand it because they are the lay people there. You know, the, the, the marketing team folks are like, well, if you can explain it to me, then, you know, I explain it to my grandma, then, then it's good. And so there it's, it's, it's a good bar to try to make it more than just for the geeks, by the geeks, um, but to make it something that everybody else can understand. Given the immense creativity and sheer number of man hours that go into, say, a DEF CON final, how does that scale and still have that brilliance and creativity in a live CTF? So it's a trade-off and, and you do lose that. So for example, um, uh, so, so live TTF as a concept. So, so George Hotz, GeoHot, um, started this kind of many years ago. Um, and I had done a couple as well, like just a long time ago. Uh, just this idea of like, hey, this feels like we could do something with esports, with hacking, kind of like this sort of Twitch and live streaming model, but like, can we make it competitive and head to head? Can we add commentator? We had, there's been experiments. There's been people doing different things um, kind of around that. Even, even Frostgear had done some of that as well too with, with some of the stuff that they were doing. So that, like people were kind of tinkering with this um, and trying like, how can we, how can we do this? Um, even, even CISA actually recently I saw is, is doing this. And uh, there's a couple of other, other folks kind of, kind of getting into it. Um, but I will say it, it is, it is very much a trade-off. And so the challenges that, that, that myself and my friends that were doing the live CTF stuff last year at DEF CON finals, these are like baby challenges, right? These, they have to be for a couple of reasons. One, because it's not fun to watch somebody stare at a screen for eight hours, right? Like right. that's just not engaging. And two, to make it something that you can even, um, engage with and talk about and try to make it understandable, you have to make them sort of easier, simpler problems. And so they tend to be what used to be called sort of derogatorily like baby's first challenges or now intro challenges or warm-up challenges, which a lot of CTFs do, which is a great thing to do is intentionally put some challenges because uh, CTF as a sort of sport has, and as a game has matured to the point that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's high art. So what Jordan's talking about is actually simplifying the tasks, having the hackers in a soundproof booth and doing that over, say, Twitch. Yeah, we, we, we wanted to make it um, digestible. We wanted to make it um, sort of the purest of speed of the fastest hackers. Um, and you have to be both good and you have to be fast. And they're not necessarily the same thing. There are people who are far better exploit writers and reverse engineers than me that would not do well in a live CTF because that's just not the pace that they that they operate on. Um, so it is specialized and I don't hold it up as any great representation of like, these are the best of the best at like all hacking. Um, it just, it's a very niche skill set, but it is, they're still really good and they're still fantastic. And the best people have a combination of just great familiarity with their tools, good intuition, very, very fast, a little bit of pre-built analysis and maybe, I'm curious. I am really curious if next year we see more people come preloaded with things like, you know, can a chat GPT like auto solve some of these stuff? Can it help you? Like, I don't know. Like, it'll be interesting to see our people start building automated tooling, which ironically was part of the goal of CGC, right? Part of the goal of CGC was to do that. Um, and I think it, most of what was done in CGC didn't really fulfill the vision of like true AI machine learning. And it was more about orchestration and automation and kind of more like expert system level stuff. 
And we're now maybe at the point where actually, if you did it again, you would really see actual cyber reasoning systems. And that was the name of what they called the system, right? Were cyber reasoning systems. And, and I think that may have been a little overpromised for what really what all the teams kind of converged on and the solutions that, that proved to be successful and the way that things worked. I think reasoning is a little strong, but what we're seeing today in, in modern uh, ML really, at least in my opinion, sure looks like reasoning to me. And so if we ever go back and apply that again to something like CGC, it would be, yeah, really interesting. But as you said, big, big budget. I don't even know the total budget for CGC, but it was, it was a lot. And live CTFs, well, that started at DEF CON CTF last year. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live CTF. We're gonna, this is our audio check for our live stream. Hopefully, you guys can hear us. Let us know in the chat if you can. I'm Cyphertex or Jordan. I'm going to be one of the commentators this weekend, and with me is Carl. Hi, I'm Carl, or Zeta2. Uh, we'll be commentating here with Jordan, and uh, yeah, glad to be here. I'm, okay, I'm, I hope it, this is, yeah, we put a lot of work in. This has been uh, a lot of stress, but uh, we're starting. I think everything's working. We're looking forward to, uh, to seeing the teams compete. So before we kind of get into the meat of it, let's, let's talk a little bit about like, the history, what this event is, what we're doing, uh, what we're hoping to see from the teams. So you know, Live CTF as a concept has existed for quite some time. Hey, 666, we see you in there and in the chat. Yeah, definitely let us know if you're doing this. Uh, we have to bring the camera in if we get too many jokesters behind us. Um, <laughs> It is DEF CON, so we're going yeah, we're, yeah, we're yeah. to get that. Um, Gordon and his team did live CTFs parallel with the actual CTF finals. And this year? Live CTF is a part of DEF CON, right? So last year, you got points in the DEF CON CTF based on how well you did in my little sideshow and how, how far you made it through the tournament. And it was enough that like you had to take it seriously. Like you didn't want to just phone it in and skip the event. It was, you know, it was kind of tuned. It, I think the goal, I forget exactly the phrasing of it was we wanted it. And again, this was the Nautilus Institute is the group running it. Um, and they sort of made the, the choices. And we just said, we're here, we're going to give you a list of people. And we, you know, we'd like it to, we were some points because it'll incentivize these teams to send their best people. It's like, you've got the, some of the best hackers in the world playing DEF CON CTF. Why wouldn't you? want to like take advantage of that. And so we wanted to incentivize them. So they made the point such that like you couldn't ignore it, um, but it wasn't going to like take somebody from eighth to first, right? You don't want to like just totally, um, you know, swing too hard. Uh, and so they, you know, they kind of tried to tune it to, to do that. Um, and so it was a part of it and it will be uh, a part of it. I guess we haven't, I don't know if we've actually announced that anywhere yet, but I don't think that they'll get mad at me for saying we're doing it again this year. We'll probably start talking about it. So again, yeah, a, a, a first exclusive uh, announcement, uh, but we are, we're, we're going to be back uh, this, this next year. Um, and uh, yeah, so hopefully for, for both quals and finals, um, we'll, we'll have some, some live CTF stuff. There are some examples of live CTFs today. George Hotz has done a few and Marcus Hutchinson as well. And John Hammond, but in episode 21, I talked with Live Overflow, and he even commented on trying to get to that level where you can do a CTF live on TV. My question is, though, is it finding an audience? Is there a commercial value to even doing a live CTF? Or is it still just a niche thing that I would probably tune into, but perhaps no one else? That's a great question. I, and I don't know that I know the answer. Um, it, it is interesting, you know, when CTF itself started uh, many years ago, it was very anti-commercial, like sponsorship, no, keep your grubby money out of my pure hobby kind of thing. And some of that's kind of like toned down, right? Most conferences, uh, 
that are still around, still succeeding, have commercial backers. Um, you know, DEFCON, even DEFCON is, well, sort of its own thing, not really sponsored by a company, is still actually owned by a commercial entity that runs Black Hat, makes a lot of money. And like, it's still, it's still a commercial venture. Um, and so I feel like there's this kind of interesting, like, people are getting a little more chill about that, a little less of the anarchist hacker vibe. Um, but I don't know. So I think there is, a, again, I mean, look at like CISA clearly thought it was valuable to like talk about uh, and be able to like have this kind of e-cast, yeah, e-sports casted um, hacking event. So I, I think it's there, um, but I don't know. Part of me still wants it to be, you know, me and my friends doing a thing for a while, um, but I also want it to, to grow and to get a bigger audience. And that sort of ne- necessitates uh, figuring out a way to make it commercially viable, whether it's, you know, game, uh, you know, LED lighting and gaming chair sponsors and keyboard, you know, mechanical keyboard manufacturers or, you know, get the keyboard that the best hacker from, you know, this uses, like, I don't know what that looks like. Um, I, I, but I would like it to be, I, I think there is still, uh, I mean, we had, I have to pull up the numbers, but we had several, um, I think like a thousand people live watching, um, live and i haven't even looked at the, the recap since then for live ctf last year so to me like that's a that's a decent start for an audience um to so i i think there's something there to it and this, again the first year that we had done it it was still like um so hopefully you know if we we come back this year we'll get you know even more um views and, and it can be accessible to it right because the goal like the goal is you can't have it just be look at this arc this arcane subtle thing you have to make it accessible which is which was one of the things that i really liked about cyber grand challenge because they had the budget and we had the time we built ground up visualization technology that didn't exist anywhere it was actually a game company and um that was our original task in mind and, and my co-founder rusty like we went to work with a game company that knew like 3d visualization and they knew nothing about ctf and the question is well how do we show what's happening inside the game how do we make this comprehensible um, and I don't think anybody has really done that since uh, to that degree. There's been there was a CTF in Japan that has a really flashy kind of visualization of just uh, and there's been a lot of CTFs that will do like watch the pew pew packets and watch like you know scores and everybody tries to do something like that. But the degree to which we were able to really design something custom and think about how to clearly communicate and to show things that were both like technically real and also you know comprehensible. Um, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff just even on the visualization that we did that I've not seen since. Um, and I think it needs to be a part of if it ever, you know, gets bigger, but yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I'm a little busy with the company and, you know, I don't know where, you know, I don't know where, where, where it goes, but I, I do want to see it succeed. So what advice would Jordan give for someone who wants to transfer their skills over to InfoSec, someone who wants to get started? Should they start with CTFs? You know, George, George intimidates me. I remember when he was soloing, beating the best teams in the world. Like, and, and then, but you know, he had his reign and then uh, Loki Hart came along and did the same thing to him. Like there's just, there's always somebody better, um, which is, which is of course a humbling thing, uh, you know, as, as you get older, but uh, it, there, and that's what I said earlier, it has gotten to some of these top tier CTFs. You can't just show up and, and do well at, that's just not possible. Um, because they're 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 so honed. I mean, not always. I mean, sometimes just being really good at the topic is sufficient. But there, you know, there's whole categories of challenges that have like this history of of well, this challenge inspired this challenge, which inspired this challenge. And unless you know the lineage, it's just harder to kind of kind of get into it. So that that's one of the things that sometimes is you have to balance as a CTF organizer. Some of that's 
fine and, and perfectly acceptable because it is part of this culture and part of this, this scene. Um, but also you, you, you do want to let people have an on-ramp. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of CTFs. Uh, Pico CTF is obviously uh, one of the best. In episode 29, I interviewed Megan Kearns, who runs Pico CTF, out of the cyber lab at Carnegie Mellon University. It's open for anyone, and it's designed to get you started with CTF experience. Brumley's even said that he somehow gives me partial credit somehow for the idea of it, which I think is bogus, um, because that was that was all him. Um, but uh, it's it's a fantastic, um, uh, well, him and obviously a lot of other people, but um, it, it's it's a, it's a fantastic CTF. There's, you know, Seesaw CTF. There's a couple of CTFs that their quali- qualification run anyways for Seesaw. Uh, and um, there's, there's some that focus on that kind of the beginner thing. Uh, the more important thing is just start doing it and be okay failing at first and learning and go reading write-ups afterwards. And then just kind of, you have to wean yourself off of it. Um, the same way that when you start programming, 90% of what you write is from Stack Overflow. And the more you go, like it's never zero. I've been doing it for long enough. It's never zero, but it gets smaller and smaller as you're able to you know, do more of it. It's the same way with CTF where at the beginning, you're just like overwhelmed and, and then you just focus on one thing, focus on something else. Even, even George, you know, when George, um, he didn't overnight become the best person in the world at CTF. Like he methodically said, I don't know crypto. I'm going to go and read all the research papers. I'm going to go read all the write-ups. I'm going to go practice. I mean, he didn't have a job at this point. He was he was like between things and the kind of had enough money. He could literally just devote himself to like studying the domain for a while. And so he was like, I'm going to do crypto. I'm going to go to this. Like he, he kind of picked it apart. Most people don't have, he's also just very smart to begin with, but have both the time and the, the ability to just go and, and do that across the field. But like, Picking, okay, let's go look at the latest web app security. Let's go look at the latest bug mining reports. Let's go read, you know, find the right blogs or tweets or where people are talking about web app security and just get really good at that. Um, because even most most teams don't have people that try to do everything. There's the crypto person. There's the reversing person. There's several pwnable people. There's the web app. There's, there's all these different specializations um, that, that you have to do. So Jordan pretty much embodies the hacker mind. Having started out with CTFs, and now he's running a security company and hosting televised CTF competitions. You know, it's funny when I started Vector Thirty Five, I, I put um, on my little like snarky bio on the website, which we need to update. It's been years; we need to take it, take him down. I think, but uh, CTF anthropologist slash apologist, basically. Like, I really like uh, look archiving and collecting the stories. Of what's happened uh, in CTFs, and so a lot of my talks uh, have been about just really cool things, and they're you know just the things I've experienced. Other people, again, I've not even been active in the last uh, you know decade nearly as much, and so there's tons more stories happening, and I want those to be kind of collected and talked about. I think it's 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 a it's a cool world with lots of lots of neat stuff, um, but also I I wanted like more people to be involved and active. I want it to be accessible. I want there to be more on-ramps uh, to get people into it. Because for a lot of us, this was, you know, in the, the 80s and 90s, when you started getting into hacking, you just like you hacked in some servers and you just hope you didn't get too much trouble when you got caught eventually and or you cracked some software. Like that was how a lot of people that are now le- sort of legitimate got their start. Um, but now, you know, with the rise of cybercrime, like that's actually problematic and it's a bad idea to make that your start into information security. But the great news is we've got CTS. We've got this just unbelievable mechanism. And, and a lot of people have criticisms about CTFs that are very fair in terms of like how realistic they are um, to the real world. You can be great at CTF and miss a lot of real world skills that makes you mediocre at a real job. But generally speaking, 
um, there's actually a lot of overlap. In fact, even you know some of the weirdest challenges uh, that I've either written or or known who, who people who wrote, um, the weirder they are, the more likely they actually have some really fascinating basis. Uh, sometimes even like I know some people who were working like sensitive, you know, stuff that had some really weird bug that they couldn't publicly ever talk about, but they recreated the kernel of the really interesting bit in this totally benign CTF challenge. And people are like, oh, this is so unrealistic. And you're like, if you only knew. Um, so it, it does have a surprising amount of uh, kind of kind of real world overlap. Um, and it's just fun too. So, you know, I think that as a way to get people into vulnerability research and information security and reverse engineering, uh, it's, it's pretty fantastic. Jordan further cautions that not everyone is going to be able to compete in a live CTF. That's actually one of my favorite things, by the way, about live CTF. As you see, even the best people in the world who are far better than me, um, I watch them do things like, oh, wow, they, if only they just did this. Or that's weird. They exist. They could have done this command line tool. They could have used this feature of, of Binary Ninja or IDA or whatever. Like, so it is, it is interesting. I remember even the first time George did that, I was like, wow, he's so good. And he makes all these mistakes. Um, and it was like, again, it didn't detract from him in my opinion, cause he was still like God tier level good at the time, how the, it, he was just so effective. Um, but like it did humanize him a little bit to see him kind of behind the scenes. So I think that's one of the, the great parts about live CTF is you can both be awed and amazed sometimes just at how good people are, but also like, Oh, actually like I knew that little thing, or I could have done that a little bit better, you know? And so, so I think that's, that's a fun, fun aspect to it. I'd like to thank Jordan Wines for coming on the show and talking about his long history with CTFs and his company, Vector35, and its product, Binary Ninja. If you want to get into InfoSec, there are opportunities with CTFs, and some of them have the beginner level, which teaches you what you need to know to move up. Perhaps televising the more elite CTFs, that might be a way to get more people interested in information security. That might show some of the cool things that can be done to teach people what they need to know to better defend ourselves online. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative InfoSec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon or at robertvamosi on Twitter. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. The Hacker Mine is brought to you commercial-free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mine, I'm Robert Famosi.